Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit BroadwayBullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. Well, I wouldn't want it to be too perfect every night. It is live after all, it is live. All right, welcome back to Broadway Bullet, Volume 112. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and ah, I don't know where to begin. We've got such a great episode for you. We've got some in-studio exclusive performances from the musical's time being, and New York Musical Theater Festival Broadway Idol winner Jacqueline Huberman. We're going to get up close with Georgia Stitt and hear two songs from her brand new CD, This Ordinary Thursday, with quite a star lineup of singers. We also talked to Stephen Tomlinson, writer and actor in the one-person show American Fiesta that's now playing at The Vineyard. Marty Cooper recounts some great stories surrounding the producers and just a whole lot more. Got tons of stuff, so let's jump right into it. Close. Georgia Stitt has recently gained notoriety as a musical director for You're the One That I Want on Greece, but she also has an extensive career musical directing other places and as a gifted composer herself. And uh, she's gathered a lot of friends together to release her debut CD as a songwriter, This Ordinary Thursday, the songs of Georgia Stitt. And she's come on down to the studio to talk about all things Georgia. How are you doing? Hey, Michael. I'm good. How are you? Good. First off, let's talk a little bit about the album here. Yes, let's talk about the album. It's a different type of album from what's out in the theater scene. As a composer, you just kind of assembled a lot of different singers, and it's a lot of different songs you've written, and we haven't seen a lot of that out. You know what? The truth is, um, I've been writing musicals for 10 years. I went through the NYU Musical Theater Writing Program, and um, and it takes so long to get an, a musical from the idea in your head to the first production to the production that launches it out into the world. And so after doing readings and workshops and all these developmental steps of my pieces, I thought, I can't believe I've been in this town for 10 years and there people don't know what I do. And, um, and I thought if I could just put something in the world that said, this is my calling card, this is what my music sounds like, this is who I am, um, that was where the idea for the album came from, and I realized I had enough songs that weren't actually from shows that I could release something that showcased performers really well, but also um, put some material out in the world that you know were songs that you could act and songs that you could really dig in and sing, and and so that's what this is. Now, did you have a record deal before you put together this album? Because out on PS Classics. It's on PS Classics. Were they attached before you recorded this, or did you have to put this together yourself? No, I put it together myself. And I um, I approached Tommy Krasker, who's uh, with Philip Chafin. They're the two producers that they run, PS Classics. And um, I approached them, and I said, I've got this idea for an album, and this is what I would like to do. And here's what I've already got recorded, and here's some samples of what the music will sound like. And here are you know, demos of me singing the rest of the songs that, I, I want to include. And they really bit. They said, this sounds like a great idea, and um, and we really like the aesthetic that you've chosen for the album, and we think we could sell it. So um, so they came on board. There was just, I never felt for a minute like they were doubting what I was doing or that they were giving me anything but support. It really was a glorious experience working for them. 
So uh, maybe we should, before we continue further, play one of the songs from the CD. Okay. What would you like us to play first here? Well, you know, the newest song for me is the one that Sada Ramirez recorded. It's called It Almost Felt Like Love. And so that's the one that I'm still, it's really fresh for me. And so that's the one I want to hear. I haven't heard it as much as I've heard some of the other ones. And yeah, Sada Ramirez as a Tony winner. Tony Award winner, yeah, for her role in Spamalot. And she's now um, got a, a major part on Grey's Anatomy. She's one of the people who went out for pilot season and stuck around. Is this song, <laughs> do you need to set up anything about the song? or? I think it's pretty self-explanatory. All right. Here goes. We sat at the ocean We talked in the dark The wind made it chilly But I felt a spark The night wasn't perfect These things never are But it all Like 
what was it like calling up everybody to get them on board? Was it was it a lot of work, a lot of coordination? To because you first off, let me say some of the names that okay. are here on the CD. Uh, Jen Colella, uh, who I was told is coming in the studio shortly to. She's sing. fabulous. Cheyenne Jackson, mm-hmm. uh, Faith Prince, mm-hmm. Will Chase, Kelly O'Hara, Susan Egan, among many others. There's Matthew Morrison, Andrea Burns, Titus Burgess, Keith so, Byron Kirk. So who's who on Broadway right now? Yeah, it really is, and um. I I'm as Jen Kalella says, you know, dummy. I knew that um, I knew that putting these people on the album would help sell it because I thought if you're just in a record store and you pick this up, the songs of Georgia Stitt, and you've never heard of Georgia Stitt, what's going to make you want to buy this album? And I thought, well, if you're a fan of any one of these people or collectively all of them, you'll be like, oh, that's interesting. What's that? So I was aware of that as a as a business tool. But I also have to say the joy of putting this album together is that these people are my friends, that I didn't have to cold call anybody and I didn't um, I didn't have to beg anybody to be a part of it. It really Nobody was... Nobody was going to check with their lawyers and see... Well, there was a little bit of that. You know, there are people who are already on other labels, but, um, but that's the business of it. There was definitely not... You know, there was definitely not any resistance from anybody. And there were people, there there actually are people on this album that said, I said, you know, two or three of my songs, which one would you like to record? You know, it was it was really a gift. And that, I think, comes from those 10 years I was talking about in town, that just having worked as a music director and, and as a composer and having gotten to know these amazing performers and, and building personal relationships with them, that I, I'm so privileged to have this unbelievable cast. If they were in a show, I mean, come on, it would be a big hit. <laughs> these are all – we should do the show this Ordinary Thursday. Now, back to a little bit of what I've hinted up at the intro. You just had a very high-profile gig recently. I did. I was the vocal coach for um, the Grease reality TV show, which I think more people actually watched than confessed to watching. Now that I'm back in New York, I'm seeing that a lot of people sheepishly say to me, oh, yeah, I saw it every week, and they tell me who their favorite was. Now, I'm not going to pretend that I was a fan of this. <laughs> no, I understand. There's but, a lot of resistance in this community, and I even understand why. But I have to admit, it sounds like an interesting gig to have. It was a great gig. I moved to Los Angeles two years ago. And so part of I've had a lot of doubts about what I'm supposed to be doing in Los Angeles. And I won't say that that working on reality TV is my is my, is my arrival. That's the place where I'm supposed to be. But I do feel like I had a lot to offer to these young singers. And the 14 contestants that made it to the finals were all so unbelievably talented, and they're all gifted in very different ways. And I, I'm not going to be surprised when you see, in addition to the two winners, I think you're, you're going to see a lot of them um, in shows uh, of their own because they have so much to offer. And so just getting to work with them one-on-one, I was with them for 10 weeks every day, working with them on the material that they were assigned and helping them make choices about it and getting to know their voices and that was thrilling to me. And then also learning about TV and how that works and um, how much control you have over some things and how little control you have over other things and what happens when an executive walks into the room and everybody suddenly has to readjust their plan. It just, you know, and trying to make the best product that you can under those situations, it, it, was, it was really interesting to me. I enjoyed it a lot. Now, how did you land the job? I know Kathleen Marshall suggested me, um, because she and I have worked together before. I know David Chase, who's a fantastic music director, vocal arranger, dance arranger on the Broadway community, was coming out to be a, another vocal coach. And he, they, I think the deal was they were bringing one person from New York, and they wanted to hire one person local, and they all knew that I was in L.A. So they hired me as the local person, but were thrilled because I had the Broadway experience. 
Um, and that's how it came out. But then, like anybody else, I had to be screen tested. And they said, you know, if you don't pass the screen test, maybe you'll just be a pianist on the show. And um, that wasn't as interesting to me. But, you know, I, I wore cute clothes and I made sure that my roots were done and I did a good screen test. And it just worked out well. And then I was really hired for the first week just to do the training week, what they call Grease Academy. And then after that, they brought me back for the whole rest of the season. So I felt very blessed to have that opportunity. Is there anything that happened behind the scenes that you can spill that maybe most of the regular viewers wouldn't realize? Or, You know, I wish I could, but I, I signed a confidentiality thing. I, You know, I can tell you that there are lots of things that changed at the last minute. There were, as we got further and further into it, a lot of people who were in the final said, my friend so-and-so didn't come to the auditions because she thought it was ridiculous and and she should have come because she would have done well. You know, and it's even the people who who got cut in the early weeks have seen a boost in their careers. You know, one of the guys who got cut within the first three weeks told me that when he came back to New York, um, all of his auditions were different, that the casting directors treated him differently and that the pianists knew who he was and that people, that there was a sense in the audition room that people wanted him to do well as opposed to that non-equity feeling where you, where you feel like you're lucky if, if the casting director looks up from his paper to, you know, to give you the time of day. And, and so he just felt, regardless of what the, um, what the general opinion was, he felt respect in his auditions, which was something he had not had before. And I thought, if that's all you got out of this, that's a lot. That's a great thing for you to have, to have gained in your career. And then um, some of them are getting called in for things that they wouldn't have gotten called in for before. I think the deal was at the original auditions, they cast non-equity people and they cast equity people. And the, the audition process is that the equity people had you know, they had appointments, they had agent submissions, they they had a more direct line into the audition route. And I think also they were protected and their, um, their auditions weren't able to be shown on TV, whereas that's why you saw a lot of the non-equity auditions in, in the first couple weeks when they were showing the audition sequences. So there are certainly advantages to coming in as an equity performer. But then once they made it to the finals, they were all treated as equals. They were all, the equity and the non-equity people were all thrown in together because they had earned a certain amount of respect by getting it, by getting this far. So for me, it's really all about respecting them. I was making sure, and I have gone out of my way since then, to make sure that they don't get treated as, as people who got cut from that reality TV show, but rather they got treated as people who made it to the finals on national TV and got to sing in front of average 7 to 8 million people, which is more than come to see an entire run of a Broadway show sometimes. I thought it was a great exposure for them, and I was real proud of them. American Idol has definitely shown that you don't have to win to end up with a career with uh, our little Oscar winner, Jennifer Hudson, <laughs> most yeah. recently. And you know, I mean, I, I hear where you're going with this. If they had been untalented, I would agree with you, and I would agree with this backlash in the Broadway community about um, about how they're getting, you know, they're getting breaks. They do, they had an opportunity, but um, but they're not untalented and they're not undeserving of the success that they're getting. So, so that's where I fall on that debate. <laughs> And back to your CD. Yeah, let's talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> now, you, what's it like walking into stores and having your CD there now? 
Oh, well, I have to tell you the funny story. The, the CD was released um, in early April on a Tuesday. My concert at Berlin was on Monday night. You know, we celebrated, like, it's coming out tomorrow, and then on Tuesday it came out. But on Tuesday I had rehearsal all day, and then I had something in the evening, and I was I couldn't really celebrate the fact that today was a big day. But on Wednesday I was in Midtown at lunch, and I thought, I'm going to just go look at Colony. I'm going to see my record. And so I walked in very proudly, and I was like, where's my record? And I looked at the shelf where it said new releases, and I didn't see it. And I saw all these other records that I knew had just come out, and I was like, interesting. So I went to the front desk, and I asked the guy behind the counter, I was like, hi, I'm Georgia Stitt, my album just came out yesterday, and, you know, is it, where is it in the store? And, and he looked at me, he said, you're who, you're what? And I had, no, I haven't heard of that, and I don't think we have it. And I, was, I called my husband, who's in Los Angeles, and I said, they don't have it. If Colony Records doesn't have my album, who's going to sell it? And I got all upset. And um, about two days later, I came back, and not only was it out, it was like on special display right by the cash register. And clearly, several of them had sold because the pile was lower than the rest of the other piles. And I, I kind of grinned at the guy behind the cash register, and I was like, it's me. That's my record. And he was like, oh, my gosh, I just sold one an hour ago. So it made me feel great. You know, it took them a day or two to get it. But but now it's it's just amazing to walk in and, and, and see this thing that you've been laboring over right there available for people to buy. So uh, we're going to play another song from okay. the CD for our lucky listeners. What, what one would you like to play here? Do we need a setup here? Let's play She. It's a duet. Um, Cheyenne Jackson and Titus Burgess are singing this. This is a song that I wrote. Um, there's an organization in New York called the New Voices Collective. And um, Joel Fram and Annette Gilles and Jen Bender and Doug Okerson run that program. And they take people like me who are music directors slash composers, and they give them an opportunity to to write new material and have it performed, similar to this record, by really great Broadway performers. And so Joel Fram, who's the artistic director of the program, came to me and he said, I need a duet for two men. And it can be about whatever you want it to be about, but I just that's what I need in the show. And so I wanted to write about two men who weren't in love with each other and weren't father and son and weren't brothers, but like what is the relationship that they could have? And this and I thought, what about two men who are in love with the same woman? And so that's that's what this is. It's called she. All right. Like a breeze when you're asleep, or a promise you can't keep is she. December on the beach, always just beyond your reach, is she? You want to claim her all for your own, but if you cling too hard, you'll find that you are left alone. As elusive as a year, all you want forever here is she. Song a million times is she, and now that song's your favorite, ever changing like the tide, always ready for the ride. Is she? She 
grabs your hand and charges ahead. She charges And if you stall, another man might win her heart instead. But remember what she needs, like a rose amid the weeds, is she. To keep it grounded, hold her with extra long arms, and she will reach for a life with love compounded. You don't have to match her pace; just be sure you're in the race. Like a whisper, never heard. Like a sixteen-letter word. As complex as any graph, as enticing as a laugh, is she? She is impossible to contain, and yet you need her just as the flowers need the rain. All that madness will allow, all you want forever now. Again, the album is called This Ordinary Thursday, and I understand that beyond your wonderful, interesting interview right here, that you're going to attempt to drag in a couple of these amazing performers to sing some songs for your from your CD over the next few weeks. Yeah, I know Jen Colella is coming in. I'm going to come back with her, and we'll play um, we'll play the song that she sings on the album. And um, I've spoken to a few of the other ones who are interested in your podcast. I mean, who wouldn't be interested in the Broadway Bullet podcast? So I'll see who else I can pull in. The CD is great. Uh, I, I'm loving it. I, it's out on on PS Classics. It's in stores. It's on iTunes. It's on iTunes, especially important for our listeners who may not be in major centers you know, yet. Yeah. Um, you can order it from PS Classics. They'll mail it. You can order it on Amazon, or you can download it from iTunes. Though I have to say, I am um, partial to... I spent a lot of money on this graphic design and the booklet, and all the lyrics are in the booklet, and, and there's a little essay that I wrote, and there's an essay that Craig Carnelia wrote. and you know, So if you're interested in that, you should just pick up a hard copy. All right. Thanks very much, and I look forward to seeing you again. Thanks, Michael. On the boards. In the third main stage production of the Vineyards 2006-2007 season, we have a one-man show written and performed by Stephen Tomlinson in which he exposes how a collector of fiesta wear discovers many of the differences between our so-called red and blue states. And he is here in the studio to talk about the show and give us a short taste of the monologue. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Michael. Thanks. So first off, I have to say, uh, tell us a little bit about the show, uh, what it's about, what inspired you. 
I was thinking during the 2004 election about how negative and divisive things were, and I found myself in conversations with my friends, and all we did was work each other up about politics, and I was trying to figure out what, what's that about, and what are the possibilities that we could actually get to a smarter, saner place in this conversation. And at the same time, I had started obsessively collecting these uh, Depression-era dishes called Fiesta Ware. And um, it was also about the same time that my partner, Eugene, and I went to Vancouver to get married uh, under Canadian law. And we'd invited my parents. And as much as they're supportive of us and love us, they just couldn't go to a, go to a wedding. They couldn't get there. And so I was thinking about how these three things might fit together, politics, family dynamics, and vintage dishes, and that's where the play came from. <laughs> For those of our listeners who, like myself, who didn't know what fiesta ware was, what, what exactly is that? Fiesta ware are the most popular dishes ever made. They are Depression-era ceramics made from 1936 until about 1943 in these six wonderful colors, this flaming red, beautiful turquoise, green, yellow, ivory, and cobalt blue. And they uh, are dishes that the moment you see them, you'll recognize them. You're one, you're one of your grandparents had these dishes, or you've seen them in little junk shops when you're traveling all over the country. And there's this whole subculture of people who obsessively collect these dishes. And uh, finding rare pieces, finding mint condition pieces, making a complete set becomes the preoccupation of a really, really rabid collector. So I saw Fiesta Ware and thought it was maybe just uh, changing the brand name of Tupperware. No, no, that would, <laughs> a little ignorant there. You can get in bad trouble if you don't clear that up fast. <laughs> so uh, how long were you uh, putting the show together? We started writing this show on commission in April of 2005, and we had a run of it in Austin in October 2005 with the creative team that helps me create all my work in Austin. And then we remounted the show in July 2006, and that's when we got uh, the connections that led us to the vineyard. You know, I think this is one of the areas where we have to remember that it's not the red states and the blue states in our current political climate in the fact that I'm constantly surprised, I don't know why, at what seems to be a very healthy and thriving art scene in Texas. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Which our red and blue state division would tell us there's not, but... Of course, it's people. It's not states. Well, two things we need to remember. First of all, in the last presidential election, every major metropolitan area in the country was uh, effectively a blue island. That is, they, they went democratic, even though the, the folks in the rural areas were voting red and that tipped the balance. The other thing is that Austin is an incredible exception. It is a hotbed of progressive political activity and cutting-edge arts right in the middle of Texas. And every misfit who grows up in Texas somehow finds his or her way to Austin at some point. And it's a wonderful, creative, exciting place. This is maybe a little off topic from the play, but um, I also have a music program. And we, I was talking with an Austin performer there about how she wasn't sure if there, there is a great artistic scene there, but she wasn't sure that there were any audience members there for all the musicians. <laughs> and is it the same way with theater? Is it, is it such a collection of artistic creators that there's not an audience, or is there also quite a healthy audience? It seems there is. I, I read a couple of years ago that there were more independent theater companies per capita in Austin than in any other city in America. And I'm always surprised, no matter how small the company, no matter how uh, how out of the way the production, it always seems like there are people there who appreciate it. 
And I know that uh, my friends and I who create these pieces in Austin, we feel very lucky to have a big audience for, for everything we do. Now, when you're writing your one-person show and, and moving into New York, I imagine there's a lot of stress the one-person show of yeah, how do I make sure to keep this interesting to an audience and and at what point do I feel like I'm pandering just to try to make it more interesting and and trusting yourself you know, that sometimes, you know, simple is fine. I'm just kind of, as you're writing and putting it together, I'm wondering how much of those thoughts invade your mind. The people with whom I work in Austin, my director, Christina J. Moore, and Scott Kanoff, who's the artistic director of the State Theater, which is uh, the artistic origin of this piece, they stay on me constantly. Stephen, you are not telling your story. You're telling our story. This is about the audience. And if you can find something in your experience that is universal, that's going to connect with the people who come to see it, then that's what you write about. And I find as an artist, that's what inspires me. It's not telling my story. It's trying to tell your story through my experience. And the challenge of that uh, creates this tension and this challenge that helps make the piece happen. So my dramaturg, my director, my designers are always, I mean, I just remember we were sitting around the table and all of a sudden I looked up and I said, I think we're going to have to write about gay marriage. And it was like a bomb had dropped and the room got completely quiet. And after we, you know, got past the initial panic, everybody looked up and, you know, with, with a lot of kind of resolve said, yeah, and we're going to do it as generously and inclusively as possible, and we're going to make it about something that everybody cares about. And that's how the piece came to be. Right now, you're going to do a short selection from the show here right. in the studio today. Excited <laughs> about. Does this, um, does this thing you're about to do need any setup here? I don't think so. You know, uh, I, tr- I looked for something that might uh, give a taste of the show and, and uh, stand on its own. Uh, and the piece that I'm going to read came from uh, an experience uh, in 2004. Eugene and I were in um, New Mexico, and uh, help me remember, what's the town where the UFOs are? Roswell. <laughs> That's right. And we were we were in Roswell at this little cafe, and he handed the newspaper across the table to me, and the and the lead story on the back page was Fiesta Ware can kill you, and it had this doctor talking about how the red Fiesta Ware has uranium in the glaze. And if you eat out of it, uh, it can uh, create all kinds of problems. So it wound up uh, in the play, and I'm going to read a little section about a point at which the collector makes this discovery and uh, how he responds to it. All right. (laughs) I'm collecting radioactive dishes. The red glaze contained uranium-235 until 1943, the Manhattan Project. Holding the Red Bull to your abdomen for 24 hours gives you less radiation than a dental X-ray. Well, what's the book supposed to say? They're selling the dishes. So I go online and find an entire subculture of uranium glaze paranoia. Never serve acidic foods in Red Fiesta. Tomato sauce, vinaigrette dressing will leach the uranium out of the glaze and into your body where significant quantities could accumulate. Never store Red Fiesta under your bed or your Barca lounger unless it's in a lead-lined box. You can buy lead-lined boxes from safestash.com. The government never warned us about Red Fiesta. Imagine what's going on right now. And then it occurs to me that the original Fiesta colors are the same colors as the Homeland Security Terror Alert Scale. I scan my PayPal records, cross-check with eBay user profiles, plot points on the map, and look. Vintage Fiesta moving en masse from the red states to the blue states. 
The typical transaction is a 60-year-old woman in a Midwestern town selling to an urban bachelor on the coast. It's a plot. Design dishes to infiltrate the middle class, diverting their attention from a massive military buildup, and then decades later, when the corporate machine has squeezed the middle class into desperation, they will sell their retro dishes to creative people who support environmental protection and progressive taxes and eat vinaigrette dressing. It's the perfect trap. With one-person shows, uh, there's a rich history in a lot of different styles. And I'm kind of curious as to maybe who some of your other favorite performer writers in this genre have been. Oh, cool. I am so glad you asked that. My inspirations are Jane Wagner, who writes uh, for Lily Tomlin, Search for Signs of Intelligent Life in the Universe. Uh, the writing of Joan Didion inspired me. Walker Percy's book, Lost in the Cosmos. These uh, writers who find a way to take the politics of the day and make them metaphors for our personal struggles. I love David Hare's Via Dolorosa. That got me uh, also writing. Uh, of course, Spalding Gray inspires, I guess, everybody who goes to the stage by themselves. Now, inherently, I think uh, there's a lot of people who probably have a hesitancy towards the one-person show. I don't know if they feel that it's not enough song and dance or glamour or glitz, but the truth is, I think, it's not a genre you can just blanketly cover because it's really more akin to storytelling sure in a lot of ways and just as that goes the storyteller and the story has a lot to do with the interest oh absolutely <laughs> sure sure you know it, it, the the plus of a one-man show you can connect directly with the audience's imagination and if you find a way to tell the story with vivid images and great metaphors and that kind of stuff, I love to watch a show like that because my imagination will move even faster than it moves with a good movie or a well-staged multi-character play. And so I'm always striving in my work to try to really connect immediately and energetically with the imagination through language, through images. And working with Mark Brokaw and this wonderful team that The Vineyard has put together, we have taken this play and uh, expanded it visually with sound. We've got uh, David Lander's wonderful light design, Neil Patel's beautiful set, and uh, Jan Hartley uh, has put together some projections that just kind of move the story uh, even faster than I imagined it could. And that's what's so exciting about the Vineyard production. So what we haven't talked about through all this yet is maybe a little bit of your history, some of your past work and productions. Maybe you could tell us about some of your favorite things you've done in the past here. Sure. My um, most recent work, I'm an economist. I uh, have a Ph.D. I teach at a business school. Uh, that's my day job. And in my art, almost all of my work is looking to find um, metaphors in economic life that illuminate human experience. I wrote a play called Curb Appeal, which was about hunting for a house at a time when Austin's real estate market was overheating. And uh, my, uh, my first partner had died, and I was moving out of the house where we had lived together and buying a house for the first time. And as I was looking for a house, I started noticing how similar dating was to house hunting. And the play Curb Appeal became about the similarities in these two searches and ultimately let me explore what are we trying to do when we're shopping and what's grief really about. I wrote a play called Managed Care, which was about a guy who had a mysterious illness and he went all through the healthcare system. And uh, it was ostensibly a lecture about how healthcare works, but it was really a story about forgiveness and how the narrator uh, resolved a decade worth of tension with his grandmother as they began to commiserate about their, their health stuff. 
And then I wrote a play called Millennium Bug in 1999 about a sadistic money manager who runs a concentration camp for credit card abusers and how he uh, falls in love with one of his inmates. And the play is structured as an infomercial for this software program that runs your life. It doesn't just manage your money. It does a lot more and keeps you on track, helps you overcome temptation. And uh, it was at the time when people were talking about Y2K. So I was looking for, you know, what is Y2K really about for us? What is this apprehension about technology and our dependence on it? So all of my work boils down to finding something that we're obsessed with in our economic life, whether it's money management or real estate or health care prices or insurance or whatever, the stock market bubble, and figuring out what can we say about that, uh, how is that really about something that we can't talk about, whether it's forgiveness or grief or reconciliation or whatever. And that becomes the puzzle for me as a playwright, is trying to find a way to turn the current chatter into a metaphor that can take me deeper into something I need to understand about love, life, loss, whatever. All right, and so now we're up to American Fiesta. Is this its New York premiere? It is. This is my first time in New York, and I couldn't ask for a better team to help me uh, make a transition to a market that can be intimidating for artists. I mean, working with Doug Abel and Mark Brokaw has been a dream, not only because it's top-notch talent that serves the play so well, but because these folks have made it so easy for me to get my feet on the ground here. And it's, uh, it's really exciting. So uh, is this your first play in New York? It is. Wow. So it must be exciting as well. Extremely exciting. Does that also give you extra jitters as a performer, having the, all the thing combined at once? There was no greater satisfaction than putting the show up in front of a New York audience and getting a warm response. Just, you know, knowing, yeah, it does translate to here. You know, I've seen so much wonderful work here. So much of my inspiration comes from my trips here to see theater and to be working with people who can help take my work to the level to where it fits at this standard is just, that's, you know, means the world to me as an artist. That's starting April 26th, and it's running through May 20th at the Vineyard. That's right. It opens on Thursday, runs through the 20th. All right. And I thank you so much for coming down when you're clearly in a very busy period of getting ready. Oh, thank you, Michael. The Call Board. All right. We've added a new feature to our website, blogs. So be sure to check them out at www.broadwaybullet.com. I'm going to be writing a little bit here and there, but also all the interns that are helping out so much. This gives them a great opportunity to voice their, you know, quite remarkable opinions. So far, topics that have been covered include thoughts on blogging, the Pirate Queen, listening to show tunes, and a report from the Dramatist Guild Fund Gala. So there's always going to be a lot of fun stuff to read there. Also, if you haven't checked out our videos tab for a while on BroadwayBullet.com, because at the beginning the selection was kind of skimpy, there's tons now. There's like well over 70 videos that are connected to YouTube. So if you're looking for some fun Broadway content to kill a few minutes while you're working away, you know, just go find it there, right on our site. We have the winners for our Martin Short Fame Becomes Me uh, CDs. Yes, we had three to give out. And they go to, drumroll please, Gary Crocker from Kansas City, Missouri. Kevin Gardner from Nashville, Tennessee, and Jennifer Andrew from Lansing, Michigan. We also had another surprise giveaway this week. We had five pairs of tickets to talk radio to give out. We had a 
little trivia question and uh, that people had to answer. I'll only mention the first one here because it was kind of a trick question. That was, what was the first year that uh, talk radio premiered? Now, uh, a couple of you were very bright and realized that it actually premiered in 1985 in Portland before it headed to New York. So those two people that got that correct just flat out got a pair of tickets each. And that is Victoria S. Miller from Princeton Junction, New Jersey, and Jason D. Butler of New York. Now... The others thought that it started in 1987 in New York, but uh, we drew three out of the remaining ones, and those winners are Frank Terranella of Clifton, New Jersey, and Brian Mahoney of Sherman Oaks, California, and David Robinson of New York, right here. So congratulations, guys. So you've been missing a lot if you haven't gone to broadwaybullet.com and signed up to be an official registered user, because that's the only way you're going to hear about these great giveaways and how to respond to win. Uh, talk radio people have told us that they're going to give us a few more tickets to give away, so make sure you get signed up. Liev Schreiber gives a great performance. And also we had another giveaway just this morning before I started cutting the program of three pairs of tickets to go see the sea. Don't feel like you have missed out if you haven't signed up yet at BroadwayBullet.com because we got a lot more people lining up to do some giveaways that we got coming up. So it's going to be a great feature here for all you people who are dedicated and listening. On the boards. The musical time being is being produced by the Filled With Ensemble Theater and opens at Theater 3 on April 26th. With us in the studio, we have the book writer, story writer, lyricist, musical director, and composer with us. Luckily, that only fills up two seats. How are you guys doing? Hi, how are you? <laughs> you want to introduce yourselves quickly? I'm Erica Statlander. I wrote the book, the lyrics. I'm directing. And that reminds me that I'm Ian Unesco, and uh, I'm the composer and the musical director. What is uh, Time Being about? It's a highly unusual concept. I don't know that we've any ever seen anything like it. It takes place in a stark, surrealistic environment where eight distinct ethereal individuals, souls, convene at regular intervals. They, they're not sure why. They come to realize that they are in this place when their physical bodies are sleeping, their minds are dreaming. This is where their spirits come to try to figure it all out. And don't forget about yeah. the solets. Oh, oh, and there are three <laughs> yes, solets. There are three three, solets. They are um, sort of a nirvana trio. And that, I, uh, I think it helps me with the harmonies. I mean, I think they, they do a great job. Yeah. You know, to... And they're gorgeous. <laughs> yes, of course, of course. So they serve also kind of as a chorus for Yes, the... yes, but they have um, a rather surprising scene at the end. They're not what you expected. So what kind of inspired you to come up with this story? You know, this started last summer as um, an acting workshop. It was not a musical. It was at my summer theater in the Adirondacks. I was working with a group of actors on emotionally based characters, and they had no names at that point. We just started with emotional prep. We were um, doing a lot of acting exercises, and out of these exercises came my ideas for these eight characters. I wasn't sure what kind of a play I was going to put them in. I had some spiritual intervention <laughs> and um, came up with this idea of this very unusual environment where these... Um, individuals congregated. I guess the rest was inspiration. Ian and I have worked together on for three years now yeah, on, years. on musicals in our theater company. There are musicals that have already existed that I wrote, and he was 
been bugging me for years. Yes, that, too. That, that's what I want to say. Kept saying we have to um, collaborate. Yeah, for the past four, I think for been, the past two years, I was. He's been the was, arranger. Yes, I was. I was the arranger. So for the past two years, I was praying that Erica's going to do something original uh, for me to put, uh, you know, to put her amazing uh, writing in, 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 to, in, you know, to use my my own composition, my my own uh, artistic. Uh, I'm kind of stuck right now, but I don't know the word. Your brilliance. My, eh, my brilliance. That's the, you know, you couldn't say it better. He is amazing. <laughs> He's an amazing composer. And um, we said to each other, this is it. We have an idea. Let's go for it. And uh, and we should tell the world about that. You know, like it took us, I think, four to five, well, like around four or five weeks to, to do the musical. We wrote round the clock. Yes, yeah, so we were we working on sleep. And um, we work very seamlessly together. Uh, we have an amazing collaboration, and it's so easy. It no, I, I, I remember the days when, when you were calling me, you know, it's like, Ian, I have this great idea, you know. I used to jump in the car, come to your house, and just stay for hours and hours, and come up with, uh, with one of yeah, we the... We worked till, like, four in the morning, smoked yeah. a lot of cigarettes, yes, sorry you know. to say. <laughs> <laughs> and um, just came up with these, And I wish we should uh, have thanks to, to cigarettes songs. and coffee. Oh, and yeah. Red Bull, and Red Bull, yes. And so this is musicals due to coffee, Red Bull, and cigarettes. And yes, Orangina. Yeah. It's, it's a little plug for them. <laughs> you brought in a couple of the actors here to perform a couple of the songs to the show. And Ian, you're going to play for them? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, we, we brought two songs. Uh, one of them is going to be I Pass My Days. Uh, it's a romantic and passionate song. Ballad. Uh, uh, it's a ballad, yes. All right. and, um, so are we ready to hear that now? Oh, uh, Sure, sure. Hi, I'm Lauren Orlando, and I am playing the character Isolde. She's an isolated, lonely individual. She's extremely empathetic. She focuses mainly on the pain and the sorrow and human hurt uh, in the world. But she desperately wishes she could actively interact with the other souls. I pass my days behind my eyes, watching others live their
Ian. Yes. I don't quite place the accent. Is it South Bronx? <laughs> uh, I'm more from Brooklyn, but no, 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 no. Um, uh, I'm, from, I'm from Romania. I came, I came to this country when I was 15, and uh, I'm a classic. I mean, I was a classical uh, performer, and uh, I, I kind of choose to went towards composition. So I start composing, and uh, as Erica said before, uh, four years ago, through a mutual friend. Uh, we got hooked up, and uh, she opened this kind of, kind of like a Pandora box. I don't know if that's what you said. You know, again, with my accent, it's very hard to understand. Uh, but she uh, she introduced me to the uh, musical world, and since then, since the past four years, I'm I'm, I'm hooked. And uh, I'm uh, we're planning to do more musical for next year. We already have something in mind. Of course, we're not going to say it yet. But uh, you can expect some other stuff, uh, some uh, some other musicals from the field with company uh, soon. If I can say a little bit more about sure. Ian, he is a brilliant concert pianist and uh, composer of. I would say sort of, I don't know what you call it, new age. Classical, classical new, new age. age. Classical Incredible. New age. He's played at Carnegie. He's played all over the world. I did need an accompanist and an arranger for um, one of my musicals. Our mutual friend, Boris, hooked us up, and Ian did fall in love with musical theater, and now he has said to me, it is my no, life. No, yeah, so, now I'm, stu I'm stuck, and I'm hooked. He still does his concerts, so please come to those as well. They're brilliant. <laughs> it's amazing the way he's sort of assimilated all this and, and taken it to the moon. All right, well, we're ready to play another song from the show? Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, we'll do uh, This Is The Deal. Hi, uh, my name is Katia Ojeda, and uh, I'm playing the role of Sevriel. My name is Mark Ginsberg. I'm playing the role of Daggle. Sevriel is kind of, um, she's sort of an angry character. She feels a little pissed off by the deal she's been given, and um, she's a little cynical. She's kind of harsh, but I think she's got a soft vulnerability underneath that exterior. You would think that Daggle would be the antagonist in the show, but he's just a man, a soul, who is thirsting for knowledge and needs to know everything and needs to know it yesterday and gets very frustrated and very upset with people who he feels to be inferior to him. 
but he's a man with a great deal of passion and a great deal of charm, just doesn't exactly know how to show it. This is not what I expected when I went to that casting call. Please give me a part I pled. I need a start, I said. I won't fail and I won't fall. I remember that first casting call. This is not what I expected at all. This looks like our contract. This must be the deal. This is the line on which we have signed so that we get to feel. This is the contract. This is my role. My chance to be and show all that is here within my soul. And yet I'm always outraged. My makeup's not quite right. I seem to miss so many cues. I can't find my light. I'm afraid I won't succeed. Who can I put the blame upon? When critics say we were unmoved, soon forgotten, sooner gone. This looks like our contract. This must be the deal. This is the line on which we have signed so that we get to feel. This is the contract. This is my role. My chance to be and show all that is here within my soul. Here within my soul. Should I take the stage again, no matter what the scale, I finally know my lines at last. This time I'll prevail. Someone else is unprepared. I will try to improvise. This looks like our contract. This must be the deal. This is the line on which we have signed so that we get to feel. This is the contract. This is my role. My chance to be and show all that is here within my soul. This is the contract, this is my role My chance to be all that's within my soul Though it's not what I expected I made myself a deal I said I'd sign that line I choose to take this chance On this life On this life I chose this chance To feel Now, Erica, doing double duty as director and lyricist book writer, do you enjoy that process? There's some people who very much like doing both things. There's some people that get kind of, I think, confused and too caught up in everything to see the forest for the trees, so to speak. I must say that for all the plays and musicals I've written, I have directed them. I think it's because I'm the artistic director of the theater company. I'm there. We have a small budget. In the future, I would like to have somebody else direct my piece. 
But I also have a co-director, that's Sean Littlejohn, and he sort of brings a different angle to it. Um, we have an amazing choreographer, Jessica Northrup, and we all work as a terrific collaborative team. It is a little difficult, I think, although I do know what I want. Mm -hmm. I think what's, what's hard for me is because we have amazing ensemble actors and they bring a lot to the creative process. They sometimes illuminate my characters in ways I never, I never understood. You know, I'll say, oh, I didn't realize I wrote that or I didn't realize that character was like that. And that's very exciting. I, you know, I always need to learn to let go and say, see what another artist can do in this process with what I initially envisioned. I think I've done a pretty good job you did an at it. Job. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, to give that freedom and, and the give and take in the um, rehearsal process. But yeah, in future, I would like somebody else to direct my musicals. I'm, that might be frustrating, though. I might be sitting in the back going, ah, yeah, you have, yeah, yeah, maybe sometimes you have to let it go and then just see what's, what's going to yeah, happen. I do a lot of rewriting on the spot, so it's helpful to have me there. <laughs> When is this all taking place? It opens April 26th, as I mentioned, but uh, where, when, what, how can everybody catch the show? Uh, it's April 26th yeah. through May 13th, Thursdays through Sundays. Uh, Thursday, Friday, and Saturdays, 8. Sunday is at 2. It's at our favorite theater in the world, yeah. Theater 3, which is 311 West 43rd Street. Tickets can be purchased <laughs> through Ticket Central or on our website, which is www.filledwith.com. And we have all that information Great. on our website as well. Thanks. So, thanks for coming in, and best of luck. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you. On the positive side. Hey, once again, this is Marty Cooper on the positive side. Uh, I was just walking down 44th Street on my way here, passing possibly the two greatest logos in theater history, uh, the little Les Mis girl and that constant mask that hangs over 44th and 8th, for almost the last 20 years. And across the street, there's a lonely little St. James Theater, dark for the first time in six years. It was the home for those six years of the producers. Uh, I believe the first preview was the first day of spring in 2001. I was there. Funny thing about that evening was they, it had just started playing on Broadway. It was the first night on Broadway. And uh, out of town, they would move the sets in from the sidelines with the small wings the St. James has. They had to fly the sets in, and they weren't into that at the time. And uh, it was a little difficult. So the intermission went on for about 90 minutes. There was enough time to drink, have fun, talk, talk to your neighbors, talk, uh, call your wife, whatever. The funny part was... Uh, I don't know how, if you know the show, at the beginning of the second act, the two guys go back to their office, and Eula has painted the whole place white. Looks beautiful. The couch is white, the walls are white, everything's white. They approach her, Ula, when did you do this? She says, intermission, and it was a real funny line because she definitely had time to do it that night. Well, I got to tell you, it was one of the best nights I've had on Broadway. What people were saying about it, in my mind, were true. Subsequently, I kind of downplayed it a little bit after seeing it a few times. But first time I saw it, it was one of the great theatrical experiences. Of course, there was a little backlash when that's the only show that won any Tony Awards that year. You know, it was the Tony Award show was kind of boring, in fact, at one point, Mel Brooks said, uh, after accepting one award, he said, I'll be back in a few minutes. 
Well, in any case, a little sideline. That September, we had tickets for September 20th to see the producers. I wanted to see it then because Nathan Lane was out. And an old friend of mine, Brad Oscar, was playing Bialystok. We knew Brad when he got off the bus from Philadelphia. He was a waiter at uh, Charlie's Restaurant, which became Sam's. Great guy and was rooting for him. But of course, it was September 20th. If you remember what had happened nine days before, uh, I need not say more. And somehow, the Nazi humor or the poking fun at Nazis, the big number in the show, Springtime for Hitler, kind of fell a little flat. The audience was a little tense. It didn't get the laughs it did the first night I was there. You know, it was actually got dark and actually got a little scary. But subsequently, after that, I had seen the show a few more times. I saw it with Stephen Weber, who proved himself to be uh, kind of another Donald O'Connor. Looked like a great song and dance man. I saw Nathan and Matthew once again. A funny aside, that night of September 20th, my wife and I was there with my sister-in-law and a friend of my wife's. We, I actually know Matthew. He comes into the store a lot. And I actually, I left him a note. But he hadn't left anything at the stage door. So the man at the stage door said, uh, uh, you go down and see if everything's okay with him. Uh, and if everything's okay, you can take everyone else down. And I went down and saw Matthew, and he said, sure, bring everybody. And he was absolutely one of the sweetest men that evening. He could have been in an awful mood like the rest of New York. And he was nice to us. He talked for a while. He's just a great guy. And uh, we miss him on Broadway. We hope, we hope he comes back soon. In any case, sorry to see you go, producers. Looking forward to Young Frankenstein, the musical. I know that'll be another smash. Once again, if you have any thoughts on what I had to say, you can email me at uh, broadwaymarty at aol.com. This is Marty, once again, on the positive side. On the positive side is brought to you by The Colony, online at colonymusic.com or in the heart of the theater district at 49th and Broadway. You can always say, I found it at The Colony. Corner. All right. Way back in October of 2006, we announced Jacqueline <laughs> Huberman as the winner of the New York Musical Theater Festival's Broadway Idol. <laughs> and as promised, we have got her in to sing in the studio, give a little interview to promote her concert at Ars Nova. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you? Good. <laughs> I understand, actually, before we talk about your concert, that just last night you sang at the Where's Darfur benefit. I did. It was so cool. We were there. Okay. We were at the Knitting Factory, and um, there were, I don't know how many people in the cast, like 30 people in this rocking band, and we had this crazy um, silent auction. I think we ended up raising like $8,000 for Darfur, which is really fantastic. It was an amazing experience. And it was... Um, the the only bad part was the knitting factory's air conditioner died, and it was, as you may recall, the first, you know, warm day of the year. So <laughs> we were all just disgusting. We were sweating all over each other, and just we kept saying, it's for Darfur, you know. It we were, felt like you're in Darfur. <laughs> it did, I know. We were, we were totally rocking out, singing our butts off, so forgive me if I sound a bit sleepy. <laughs> we were out till three. It was awesome. So now they finally got your concert organized. Yeah. At <laughs> a few Nova. months later, Yes. <laughs> 
So uh, what, what's going on? What are you going to be performing here? Um, actually, we're doing a lot of different things, sort of crossing some genres, doing mostly musical theater stuff, but from many different eras. So we're doing a lot of, like, 50 stuff and a lot of contemporary stuff. And um, I've got some surprise special guests coming up. And um, I don't want to give away the set list, but it's going to be great. Before we talk a little bit more, um, you're going to perform a song here yeah, in the yeah. studio for us. Yep. Who's your accompanist? Um, my accompanist is the incredibly talented Andy Borison. We went to college together, and he's fantastic. And we're going to be um, performing I Can Do Better Than That from the last five years by Jason Robert Brown. All right. My best friend had a little situation at the end of our senior year. And like a shot, she and Mitchell got married that summer. Carol Ann getting bigger every minute, thinking, what am I doing here? While Mitchell's out every night being a heavy metal drummer. They got a little cute house on a little cute street with a crucifix on the door. Mitchell got a job at a record store in the mall. Just the typical facts of a typical life in a town on the eastern shore. I thought about what I wanted. It wasn't like that at all. Made Carolyn a cute baby sweater thinking I can do better than that. So I moved to the city thinking, what have I got to lose? Got a room, got a cat, and got 20 pounds thinner. Met a guy in a class I was taking who you might say looked like Tom Cruise. He wouldn't leave me alone unless I went with him to dinner. And I guess he was cute, and I guess he was sweet, and I guess he was good in bed. I gave up my life for the better part of a year. And so I'm starting to think that this maybe might work. And the second it entered my head, he needed to take some time off, focus on his career. He blew me off with a heartfelt letter. I thought I can do better than that. You don't have to get a haircut. You don't have to change your shoes You don't have to like Duran Duran Just love me You don't have to put the seat down You don't have to watch the news You don't have to learn to tango You don't have to eat prosciutto But you, miles and piles of you Finally I'll have something worthwhile To think of each morning You and you and nothing but you No substitution will do Nothing but fresh, undiluted and pure Top of the line And totally Hitched. 
throw up all your walls and defenses. I don't mean to put on any pressure, but I know when a thing is right. And I spend every day reconfiguring my senses. When we get to my house, take a look at that town. Take a look at how far I've gone. I will never look back, never go back anymore. And it feels like my life led right to your side and will keep me there from now on. Think about what you wanted. Think about what could be. Think about how I love you. Say you'll move in with me. Think of what's great about me and you. Think of the bullshit we've both been through. Think of what's past, because we can do better. When are the dates of this concert? The concert is May 8th, which is a Tuesday at 8 p.m., and May 13th, which is the next Sunday at 9.30 p.m. That's Mother's Day, so bring your moms. Mine will be there. (laughs) (laughs) Who are some of the other musicians that you got playing with you? Um, So we've got Andy Borison, as I said, on piano, and Tony Steele on bass, and Dave Purcell on drums. And a really great trio. I'm excited about them. Now, you got to meet a lot of great people during the contest last Mm -hmm. year. And I'm just curious, have you, um, you know, has it been a nice feather in your cap to be able to say that you did this I mean, I'm pretty famous now, so that was one good thing. Uh, (laughs) I do announce myself as BI06 whenever I can. I got to work again with Seth Rudetsky at a a Purim spiel. Um, This was a show for, you know, the Jewish holiday of Purim and... It was fantastic. It was at the Hudson Theater. You know that theater that's not really a theater in that hotel? It looks like a theater. feels like a theater, not a theater. Weird. Um, That was really fun to work with him and meet some other, you know, performers in the industry. And, yeah, I I haven't, like, spoken to Stephen Schwartz. We haven't had drinks or anything, but uh, (laughs) I wouldn't mind. (laughs) I love doing these these one-woman shows, these cabarets, concerts, whatever you want to call them. I did one back in November. Obviously, I'm doing this one in May, so I'll probably plan another one for the fall. It's one of my favorite, you know, kinds of performances. So, again, it's May 8th? It's May 8th at 8 o'clock and May 13th at 9.30 at Ars Nova. I guess you can go to smartticks.com to get tickets. Just search for Broadway Idol. The show is called Idolicious, but uh, that's a new title, so it may or may not be on Smart Ticks website. At some point, we got to stop adding issues at the end of everything. Well, not until after <laughs> May 13th. <laughs> there were a lot of other options. I usually do some sort of, like, pun on my name. Like, the other show was called um, You Don't Know Jack. Jack, because you know I'm Jack. And then we were thinking, like, oh, I don't want to give them all away because I'll probably use them, but, like, Jack of Hearts or, like, <laughs> I don't know, in college people were like, I did one in college, they were like, do Jacktastic, do Jackstasy, do Hubbermania. So I've got those in my, <laughs> my memory box. We've got all those to look forward to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, thanks for coming down. Thank you, Michael. You're terrific. Thank you so much. Top of the trades. Ah, the 73rd Annual Drama League nominations were announced. Nominees for the 2000-2006 Drama League Awards, which will be held May 11th at the Marriott Marquis Hotel, were revealed April 25th. 
Now, uh, we're going to give one category, which is Distinguished Production of a Musical, and nominated were Curtains, In the Heights, Kiki and Herb Alive on Broadway, Legally Blonde, Martin Short, Fame Becomes Me, Mary Poppins, and Spring Awakening. For all the other nominations, you can find a link from our notes page for Volume 112 at broadwaybullet.com. Ooh, the battles. In a record-posting year where the Easter Bonnet competition for Broadway Carries Equity Fights AIDS raised over $3.3 million, the top winner was the touring company of the Jersey Boys, marking the first time that it was a Broadway musical didn't win. Uh, when Hairspray lost, somebody said, uh, get that bee out of your bonnet. In other awards, Mary Poppins earned the most nominations, 11 nods, for the 57th Annual Outer Critics Circle Awards. Curtains, Love Music, and Spring Awakening will compete against the Disney show in the Outstanding New Broadway Musical category. The Coast of Utopia received nine nominations, the most for any new play. It will vie for the Outstanding New Broadway Play Award in a field that also includes Quorum Boy, Frost Nixon, and Radio Golf. On May 8th, Bernadette Peters will be featured as a guest star on ABC's Boston Legal, airing from 10 to 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Peters will play Judge Mary Anna Folger. And we're guessing that she finds either Denny or Alan a little bit quirky, but kind of gives in to their legal style, and Alan or Denny win their case. In any case, Bernadette Peters is always fun to watch, and she'll be there. <laughs> That's why what I said, this is actually one of my favorite shows. I'm psyched. Oh, a hit. A very palpable hit. According to ABC News, Rosie O'Donnell's Days with the View will come to an end next month. O'Donnell was unable to work out a contractual agreement with ABC Daytime and will leave the show in mid-June. Barbara Walters, who currently hosts the morning chat fest alongside O'Donnell, Joy Bihar, and Elizabeth Hasselbeck, said that the departure is under amicable circumstances and that she wishes O'Donnell the best. Uh, really saddening because, of course, everybody knows that Rosie O'Donnell is one of the few network champions for Broadway and Broadway musicals, having brought many a performer and musical number on to feature before a great national audience. We're told that NBC's Fear Factor is considering pulling up the slack for a theater-deprived audience by having the cast of Chorus Line run through fire and eat a bunch of slugs. If they beat the other team, they will allow them to clear their throats and sing one singular sensation. Top of the Trades is brought to you by BroadwayWorld.com. Visit Broadway World for all of your theater news and for some great message boards. We'll have all the top theater news again for you next week in Top of the Trades. Curtain Call. All right, it's been a jam-packed week. Lots of great stuff. We got some good stuff to look out for, too. Next week, we should be speaking with Daniel Jenkins from the hit Mary Poppins. He's playing the father. I'm particularly excited about the opportunity I get to interview him as he was the original Huck in Big River. And if you paid attention at all, you know that Big River is my favorite musical of all time. So uh, I think that should be a fun interview. We're going to hear some music as well from his past, as well as a little bit from Mary Poppins. We should be talking next week with the director of the new theater documentary, Show Business. That's going to be making the circuit all around the country, starting in New York on May 10th. And we're going to have a lot more for you. we got a lot coming up. Remember, get to broadwaybullet.com for more information on all these stories and links to everything you found here. Sign up as a registered user because you heard in the call board you're missing out on some great giveaways if you're not. Well, once again, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and until next week, thank you for hopping on board the Broadway Bullet.
We are so ready and raring. So Jake Kapsky says my name and I'm in the can. Actually, the barfay thing comes from my whole life. People just going vulture, foggler. So it didn't take much though when he um, proposed. I said yes. It's fun to know that those lines will stay in the show when other actors do it in the future. The hairs went up on the back of my neck. It was a thrilling moment. with the audience and explore them a little bit. So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.